Good evening. It's good to see you each at this session this evening, a time of fellowship around the word, a time of rejoicing in the spirit of the Lord. A great conference so far, good fellowship, good discussion, and we sense the presence of God's Holy Spirit with us. Beginning tonight's service again, we invite you to join with us for the theme courses, uh, Thy Word, followed by the B-I-B-L-E. Uh, by the way, not to put anybody in the spot, but raise your Bible. You got a Bible with you? How many Bibles are out? If you don't have one, pick one out of the pew. That would be fair cheating tonight. On doing the B-I-B-L-E, remember how you did with children? The B-I-B-L-E? I'm going to do it with this because I still got to leave with this hand here. But anyway, we're going to join together with the B-I-B-L-E, followed by one of my favorites, a blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Now, you all know that any have been around when I'm leading that song on the third verse, on the third chorus, watch me carefully. We're going to do a little bit of dragging out at certain portions. I'll let you know by the swinging of my hands. Now, I, I'm not swinging my hands for gymnastic reasons. If I were, it should not help my weight any. But it'll help you know where we're going with blessed assurance, okay? Join with me. We stand together and praise our Lord in sharing together. Thy word have I hid in my heart, the B-I-B-L-E. is his mind 345 
people said, Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise clap tonight. You know, the psalmist talks about praise having the hands. At this time, I'm going to ask if Brother Marion Watford would come and share our evening prayer together. Let's join in prayer together. There's joy in serving Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll go to the Lord in prayer at this time. It's such a joy to be here. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we're so grateful for the Southern Methodist nomination, for the closeness and fellowship which they have with the gospel. This is what the word is all about, serving you, bringing people to understand salvation's plan, eternity as being the destiny of each and every one of us, and to be prepared for it. We thank you for the call which is upon my life for many years to share this gospel. If there be any other church closer to the gospel and a fellowship with the gospel than what the Southern Methodist Church is, I would be a part of that. It's much to be thankful for. We take for granted so many of us as Christians in the Southern Methodist Church, the wonderful opportunity that we have this day. We not, might not be the largest denomination, but I believe we're the firmest and standing upon the rock of Jesus today. Bless this time together as we continue in service with thee and as the church tends to the business of which it has and we pray for all the leadership. We know, Lord, that great responsibility is upon the shoulders of the church today to lift the light so people might see the direction that we are headed in and the needs for many corrections that needs to be made, not only individually but families and as a nation. We know, Lord, that we're sliding in a very serious way away from what the truth needs to be told today about many issues, and we, we know what those things are today. People are taking for granted the morals that has made our nation so great. We have a sermon in our heart continuously unless we return, as the Word of God says. We're heading right on into a place of, of mixed emotions, crossroads of decisions that without Christ, we're not going to be able to go any further. We just trust you to lead us. Thank you for Brother Blank asking me to come up and have this prayer. Uh, we know that we're very humbled by opportunities and we appreciate so much you using us uh, to share the gospel message with the world today. Bless now as we go further in the name of the one which is the greatest above all, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
We appreciate the untiring work of many of our, not only founders, but continuing uh, propagators of the Southern Methodist Church and its solid biblical foundation. Tonight, we particularly want to honor one who's been faithful from a young man till a retiring man of many years of service. And at this time, I'm going to call for Brother Marvin Clark. He's not the one we're talking about, but he's going to come and share, share that presentation. Marvin, you can use this or you can use that there. So Marvin Clark doing the honors at this time in a great sense of honor to someone here. On behalf of the General Conference of the Southern Methodist Church, the General Conference Board Administration, the committee that was asked to serve in this position, Betty Tyndall, Jean Clark, and myself as chairman, to make a selection, and we hope a proper selection, to recognize and honor someone. And that person will know in just a moment whom I'm talking about because uh, when I was a student at Southern Methodist College, he gave me some challenges, troubles. Uh, he blessed my life in a very special way, and then later on I kind of challenged him. Uh, when I go to his office as a student with ideas of starting a yearbook, a newspaper, or whatever, I would present, I thought, all the answers, and he would sit behind his desk and lean back in his chair and take his fingers and do like this, and he started asking me questions. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Gave me a few more challenges. In front of the altar, he united me with my wife, my great helpmate. And then I challenged him a few times at annual conference on some things along this line. Um, but all of that said, I'm sure along the way, whenever he spoke to some bankers, about wanting a little higher interest on some retirement money, he probably tapped his fingers again and said, you sure you can't do any better or I can go talk to another bank down the road? But because he loved the preachers and their wives and the missionaries and their wives of the Southern Methodist Church to help them not get into some troubles down the road or to help them out of some down the road, he was appointed and elected to a group that was going to meet to organize the retirement board of the Southern Methodist Church. They met on my 20th birthday, May the 1st, 1967. He was elected chairman. That first year, there was 36 ministers that participated in the retirement program. There was an amount of $5,847.21 that came in that first year, according to the first report. This year, 2015, there are 60 ministers, both in the old and new program, and is presently approaching $3 million in the retirement fund. I'm going to ask Brother Julian Gamble, Reverend Julian Gamble, if he would come forward at this time. Brother Gamble. For time served, we thought this would be appropriate. On the face of it, there is um, laser engraved, the emblem of the Southern Methodist Church. 
There is a little plaque on the bottom. The Reverend Julian B. Gamble, Ministerial Retirement Board, Chairman, 1967 to 2015. I personally appreciate all you've done. I have not started drawing my retirement, but I'm getting close. If it wasn't what you did, I wouldn't have it. And I thank you for that personally, and I'm sure there are many other ministers who can and will do the same. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. My mouth's kind of dry. I feel like it's full of cotton. I can't say anything. <laughs> I appreciate the honor. appreciate the privilege of being able to serve the Lord uh, the number of years that he blessed me with. And uh, I appreciate the people in the Southern Methodist Church who uh, faithfully have supported the church through the years. I remember when we started the retirement program, uh, mostly myself and Judge L.S. Moore from Alabama, I can't remember the town right now. Uh, we drew up this, the plan and it was hard to get ministers in. You know, they didn't want to pay $90 a year to get in a retirement program. And that was buying insurance for them. But uh, I'm pleased to say that I was able to talk a few men to get in. And one was a dear friend of mine, and, and he got in. And he didn't want to, but he finally did. And, and uh, when he retired, he didn't have much money in there, but he got $100 a month. And... Uh, with the uh, increase in interest and so, and the money increased. And not only he got it for all of his life, then his wife got it till she passed away, and there was also money left in there for their heirs. And so I encourage you ministers, uh, when you get my age, a little bit of money is a very appreciative. So, uh, uh, if, you have, if you're not in the program, uh, I encourage you to be so. I appreciate the honor that you've bestowed upon me, and I'm not worthy, but uh, the Lord's worthy, and I just thank him for it, and to him be the honor and the glory. Thank each one of you, and I thank you for your love and prayers, and pray that my continue. I love each one of you. Lord bless you. Bye. It does have a Westminster chime. You may get tired of it. It goes off every 15 minutes. So, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Brother Clark, and thank you, Brother Gamble, for those years of faithful service. When that program started, I was in the Southern Methodist Church. Excuse me. Pardon me? Oh, he's not finished yet. Okay. Give him a, give him a mic, Marvin, because we can't hear him otherwise. 
ceremony for that his wife has kept him straight through the years and, and helped him and blessed him. Thank you. Uh, Brother Gamble, my wife gave up on that a long time ago. She turned me back over to the Lord so he could do a better job than she could. <laughs> now, are you two through finished now? <laughs> All right. I did want to mention, thank you, Brother Gamble, for those years of service. When that began in 67, uh, I'd been in the uh, denomination for four years, no, three years, rather, and I was but 31 years of age, and I thought, wow. I became a part of it. I thought, you know, it's going to be eternity until I'm part of that benefit. I want to tell you something, young boys. You get there a lot faster than you think you're going to. And I reiterate, if you're not in the retirement program now, you better get in it. It's one of the best programs there is for your money's investment between what you put in, what your church puts in for you, and what the general conference puts in. It can't be matched by anybody else. So I do want to mention that. Which brings me to the next thought of, the, of our announcement. And uh, I can give this with real passion since I'm now a recipient. But this retirement program was begun in 67, when before that there was no retirement for ministers at all and for, re for the widows. And you heard a report at that point. And each year it is the custom of our denomination for each annual conference at annual conference time to, re to receive a special love offering for the retired, for the retired widow, for the widows of retired and also for the retired missionaries. And so we're going to prepare in just a moment to receive that offering. And it's a, it's a love offering. So as a retiree who is enjoying that around Christmas time, would you all just love us real big tonight? Okay. I've been asked to also announce a second offering. So if you give it all tonight, that's okay. There's a bank up here with an ATM. You can go there and get some more out for tomorrow. But tomorrow there's a second special offering received every year for Southern Methodist College. Since I wear that hat also in institutional advancement, I would encourage you to prepare to trust the Lord to give generously also to the college and its needs at that time. But right now, focusing mainly on our love offering for the retirees, the retiree widows, and for our missionaries, I'll ask our ushers to come forward as we have a word of prayer. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again tonight for your love, for your bountiful blessings upon us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the kingdom work. And as they prepare now to give according to your purpose and will for their giving, I pray that you would bless them in their generosity and bless that which is given that we may be used it for your glory and for your continued kingdom purpose. Even though we're retired, we're still a part of the kingdom work. So bless the gift and the giver, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name with thanksgiving. And all of God's people said, Amen.
As we now move into our time of memorial service, Brother Mark Muller, one of the men of our church, who will bless us with a special selection following that the memorial service time. Brother Mar uh, Mark, please go and bless
There is a, a, a song entitled, Find Us Faithful, and uh, has some beautiful, beautiful words, but the truth is they're beautiful words because they're beautiful truths. It says, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fires of our devotion light the way. The idea, of course, is simply this, by our lives, the way that we live, the, the, the things that we do, that, that if people will follow us, that's a little scary, but if people will follow us, what we're saying is, if they'll follow us, we're going to lead them closer to Jesus by the way, by our faithfulness, by the way that we've lived out our lives. And really, that's what we remember, well, what we celebrate tonight as we go into a memorial type of service where, where we look at the saints that have died in our church this past year. The, the truth is, by their faithfulness, our churches and our lives have been enriched. In the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run the race with perseverance. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the truth is, those that have died this past year, see, they're now part of that great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on. And we think about them and we recall their lives. My mother passed away this year, as my church knows, and I've spent some time thinking about her. And I've spent some time recalling the way that she lived her faith. And I tell you, I celebrate her faith because I'm not just here because of it. I'm, I'm really, in, in a large part, who I am because of the fires of her devotion that lit the path for me in my life. And so I know that as we look and we see the names, as we look at some of the pictures, we can't help but think of their faithfulness to the Lord. That was their calling. But in reality, is that not the calling of every single one of us? To be faithful. And so we, we each year, we comprise a memorial list. And the truth is, we'll comprise another list next year if the Lord doesn't come back first. And for those that have been touched by the death of someone that they care about, there is always a little bit of pain, even amidst the rejoicing that we know that indeed there is coming another reunion. We may not have it on this side, but we're going to have it again someday. And the truth is, we remember Indeed, that, that their lives lit up the world. Their devotion, their devotion, their fire lit the pathway. And as they have done, I believe we are now challenged to do as well.
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. We'd like to thank the host church for that beautiful service of remembrance of those that we all have known from our various churches over the years. One of the things that I enjoy doing more than anything else is sharing God's word with God's people. And I believe that the Lord has given me a message for our denomination for the year to come. And that's what I would like to share with you tonight. I appreciate, well, it's not up there now, but I appreciate the fact that the host church uh, put our theme for the conference year in big letters up on the screen. Holy committed to the authority of God's word because that's where we need to be if you have your Bibles with you this evening I will ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and I would like to read for you verses 16 and 17 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 you probably already know these verses But let's remind ourselves of it one more time. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally is God breathed. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for this opportunity of worship tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for your holy word that we have just read. We know, Lord, and we believe that your word is truth. Your word is settled forever in heaven, and it will never change. So as we study your word together tonight, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts that you would reveal to us those things that you would have us to see and know and understand that we might be better equipped to serve you effectively 
in our society today. We do indeed acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place tonight. And we ask, Lord, that your Spirit would take your word and press it upon our hearts and allow it to become a part of everything that we are and everything that we do so that we might be better used of you and more effectively used of you in our service on your behalf. We commit this time to you, Lord. We pray that you would bless for these things we ask in your name with thanksgiving. Amen. All one has to do is pick up the morning newspaper or turn on the television set to know that our country is in trouble and to know that the church of Jesus Christ is facing some very gigantic challenges. The moral ills of our society are getting worse and worse. The very foundation upon which this great nation was founded is being pulled out from under us and our walls are rapidly crumbling. Political correctness and secularism is attempting to take away the church's ability to speak the truth and to address the real moral issues of our day. But my friends, I believe that with God's help, we will not succumb to those temptations like so many other denominations have. I believe that there is too much at stake to trifle with the future of our nation, to trifle with the future of the church which Christ died to establish, and to trifle with the souls of men for us to just sit back and do nothing. You see, there's a small but militant minority that are bent on destroying all vestiges of our Christian heritage and set in motion their cultural jihad to infiltrate the media and education and politics, especially the courts, in order that they might impose their secular fundamentalism upon us. These liberals are people who hate God, they hate capitalism, they hate the natural family, and they hate any institution like the church that supports them. But the good news is that in spite of all of the decades of atheistic propaganda that is, has been shoved down our throats, polls show that Americans remain mostly spiritual. 87% of Americans believe in God. 74% of Americans self-identify themselves as Christians. 79% believe the Bible is the little or inspired word of God. Now obviously that does not mean that 79% of Americans are all committed born-again Christians. Far from it. Many of them are what are referred to as crinos, Christians in name only. But when pressed, 
a supermajority of Americans self-identify with what they think it means to be a Christian. And that represents, I believe, both a great opportunity as well as a great challenge. You see, the majority out there are not hostile to what they think constitutes the Christian faith. But they've been brainwashed. Or they have been exposed to just enough false teaching to make them resistant to the real thing. They do not possess what they profess. They have not been transformed by faith in Christ. They do not know for sure if they have eternal life and therefore they have never shared their faith because in reality they don't have anything to share. I believe that there are two issues that have come to the forefront in recent years that demonstrates that the thinking of the average American is morally adrift from the truth of God's word. Those two truths or those two issues is the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of human sexuality. Let me say a word or two about the sanctity of human life first. David writes of God's hand upon each life. In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, David says, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. I want you to note that the psalmist knew very well that he was created by God through the miracle of procreation. People intuitively know the truth about life and about its origin because man bears God's image. The best and the latest science agrees with God's word that life begins at conception. Taking innocent life, no matter how small, runs contrary to our conscience and contrary to the scriptures. And because Americans know this deep down, they are morally conflicted. Statistically, a huge number of Americans have either participated in having an abortion or in helping or encouraging someone to get one or know someone who has. That renders them incapable of taking a strong, consistent stand for life. They have no moral standing, and so they don't want to play the hypocrite. Nor do they, or can they, condemn abortion without risking rejection by someone they know. In the 42 years since the legalization of abortion in 1973, over 56 million babies have died through abortion. In 2013, there were approximately 1.2 million abortions. If you do the math, that comes out to 3,300 abortions daily. 137 abortions every hour of every day. Over one abortion every day. 30 seconds. 
and yet the majority of Americans are unable to commit to ending this atrocity. 52% say abortion should be legal under certain circumstances. 53% do not want to see Roe versus Wade overturned. And 61% say that abortion in the first trimester should be legal. Then 64% say that abortion in the second trimester should be illegal. And 80% say that abortion in the third trimester should be illegal. That is clearly, morally, and rationally indefensible. I mean, why does the baby somehow acquire the right to life in the second and third trimester, but does not have that right in the first? And while the rate of abortion is declining, I think all of us here this evening would agree that even one abortion is one too many. Then concerning the sanctity of human sexuality, in the book of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God would judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. My friends, God did not wear a flower in his hair and attend the summer of love in San Francisco in 1968. In fact, he was not even invited. But had he been there, he would have been there to remind them that sexuality belongs in marriage between a man and a woman. And Americans, again, are conflicted because they know that sexual immorality is wrong, but they either engage in illicit sexual activity or they know people who do, and so they don't want to stand up against it. Homosexual activists have waged a very effective PR campaign. They are aided by the liberal media. They use junk science. They pose themselves as victims and they wrap themselves in the civil rights movement. So how is the sexual revolution working for America? Well, according to the Center for Disease Control, in 2011, there was the largest number of sexually transmitted diseases, disease cases ever reported. Mostly in men who were having sex with men. The rate of HIV increased 22% among homosexuals ages 13 to 24. And we still have the audacity to think that we can redefine marriage and the natural family. 64% of Americans think that homosexual relationships should be legal. 54% say that homosexual marriage ought to be legal. And we all know that just last month, the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage is legal in all 50 states. Now, I could go on and on, and I could mention the fact that Hollywood is a vast wasteland of immorality with virtually all of the stars of pop culture being liberal, or the fact that public education is on the wrong track with the last two generations of students from kindergarten all the way through graduate school being constantly inoculated with an atheistic, humanistic, materialistic view of evolution, evolution, 
which is nothing more than a poisonous fountain from which flows humanism in all of its anti-Christian forms. We could talk about Islam. We could talk about ISIS. We could talk about the thousands of Americans that have been killed as a result of those processes. But I think you get the point. So here's the question. What are we to do? What are we to do in light of the current situation that confronts us? I think I have an answer for you. I believe that we can stand firm on the solid truths of the Judeo-Christian faith. I believe that we can cling to the only hope that we have, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I believe that we can earnestly pray for divine intervention because God can do things that you and I can never do. And I believe that we can be wholly committed to the authority of God's word. Now I know what some of the people out there are saying. You're just one little church. In fact, there are individual churches out there that are larger than your entire denomination. So what can you do? How can you possibly make a difference? Whatever you might be doing is nothing but a waste of time and effort. Nothing is ever going to happen as a result. Roe versus Wade will never be abolished. Abortion will never go away. And same-sex marriage is here to stay. So there are proponents out there, Goliaths, if you will, who say that we're just spitting in the wind. So why not use our time for something more productive and just go with the flow? Uh, you've got to lay aside those silly convictions, they say. You've got to lay aside those biblical standards and those Judeo-Christian principles, they say. You've got to get politically correct. You've got to assimilate into what society is becoming. And the one that really grabs me, well, why don't you stop judging and just show love like Jesus did? Well, the Goliaths that we face in our day may not be in the form of a nine-foot giant like the one David faced in 1 Samuel 17. But the modus operandi of all opponents of the kingdom and work of God is always the same, and that is fear and intimidation. That is the only tactics that the Goliaths of our day know. Those who stand in opposition to Christian and moral principles, they know that if they can bluff us out with their bullying or their terrorization devices and just get the church to stay within its own four walls and remain as little bless me clubs, instead of coming outside and being the church, they know that they can continue to indoctrinate this generation as well as future generations with their ungodly, soul-damning hogwash. 
But I'm here to declare to you tonight that if the church will indeed be the church, if we will stand firm on the solid truths of the Judeo-Christian faith, if we will cling to the only hope that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we will pray for divine intervention, and if we will be wholly committed to the authority of God's word, then we are most certainly fighting a winnable war. Now, how do I know that? We are told in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, I know that in that context, John is dealing primarily with false teachers. But aren't those who attempt to shut down the Christian voice in our country today also, to a large degree, false teachers? Do they not use tactics that primarily involve lies and falsehoods, a twisting of the truth, or at the very least, lies sprinkled with just a small element of truth? You see, basically what John says in this verse is that that which fundamentally distinguishes the people of the world from the people of God is their respective attitudes toward Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is truth. He is the personification of truth. And by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, who is greater than Satan, who is the spirit of error, True believers can overcome deceiving teachers. We can overcome the Goliaths of our day. And in fact, according to this verse in the mind of God, it's already a done deal. You are, he said of God, you have overcome because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now understand that God never asked us to put our brains in neutral when it comes to matters of faith. John repeatedly in 1 John appeals for love, but he also places a premium on truth. Not the wishy-washy opinions that pass for truth in our society, but the absolute eternal truths of God's word. For example, John challenges us to test the spirits in chapter 4 to learn to discern between truth and error in chapter 4. He calls on us to avoid sin, which requires that we must discern what is sinful in chapter 2 and again in chapter 3. He tells us to distinguish between the things of the world and the will of God in chapter 2. And he appeals for us to identify deceivers and avoid them in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. You see, the differences between the false teachers, the Goliaths, and genuine believers exemplify the dichotomy between the forces of God and the forces of Satan or the forces of the world. We all know as Christians that it is not flesh and blood that we are at war with, but it is literally spiritual powers of darkness in high places. But... We also know that most of these ideas and most of these falsehoods manifest themselves through and by people. 
That's one reason even many Christians are so easily deceived in believing that we aren't walking in love. If we have a debate or if we have a disagreement with or if we challenge the proponents of the world system instead of just remaining meek and timid and quiet for the sake of love. These demonic spirits and influences could care less about our passive kumbaya love, my friends. They only understand one day thing, just like the Goliath of David's day, and that is warfare. We are in a spiritual war. You see, Goliath, you know the story. He was perfectly happy and content to intimidate the armies of Israel and keep them hiding behind their rocks and wagons instead of coming out and facing him. In fact, he was rather enjoying it. He enjoyed taunting them. He enjoyed mocking them. He enjoyed making light of them. And he, no doubt, like the class clown, probably drew the laughter of his onlooking army as he did so. And so as the armies of Israel cowered behind their covers that we can't and we aren't able and he's too big, he stands there and says, I'm Goliath, I can't be defeated, you can't do anything about me. And then out steps a young, enthused, indignant shepherd boy named David. The armies of Israel were crying, this man Goliath, he's bad to the bone. But David, who at this point is seemingly standing alone, and I said seemingly because with God we're never alone. David, with confidence that, that can only come from the, the, the greater one, says in effect, this giant, he's nothing. In fact, who does he think he is that he can defy the armies of the living God? But I want you to notice something. You, you remember the story. As soon as David steps out with faith in God, what happens? Sadly, even his own brothers start hurling insult and accusation at him. My friends, I am amazed at how many Christians and even pastors will bravely yell out from behind their covers of fear at those of us, their brothers and sisters, who are involved in the fight, and they will say things like, you're inviting trouble for us from the government. You're inviting trouble from the IRS. We're going to lose our 501c3 standing if you don't just sit down and shut up. Why don't you just be happy with what we have and leave it alone? Politics doesn't have any place in the pulpit. They obviously are not very familiar with David or with Jesus. And many others simply say, well, I just don't want to get involved in all of that stuff. Can I share something with you this evening? You are involved. You might not know it yet, but you're involved. The Goliaths of our day want the church to remain behind its covers of excuses and stay within the confines of our facility walls and not engage the culture. 
because some of these Goliaths, if not all of them, know that when the church rises up to its full potential and capacity in the power of the Holy Spirit, they know that the church is a force to be reckoned with and they don't want to have anything to do with her. You stay in your walls. You leave us alone. Verse after verse in the Word of God tells us that we are most assuredly in a war. But ultimately... We win. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, Yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not only are we conquerors, we are more than conquerors. So how, my friends, can we right here, right now, experience the victory that God says is already ours? May I submit to you this evening that we can do so by standing firm on the solid truths of the Judeo-Christian faith, that we can do so by clinging to the only hope that we have, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that we can do so by earnestly praying for divine intervention so that God can do that which we cannot do ourselves, and that we can do so by being wholly committed to the authority of God's word. I believe that the only way that we can combat error is with the truth of the Word of God. And that brings me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The introduction is over. The sermon begins. The sermon is shorter. <laughs> can I just share with you what I believe concerning the Scriptures? And what I believe that we as Southern Methodists believe concerning the Word of God, I'm going to make a statement now. You, you listen carefully to this. We believe in the divine, verbal, plenary inspiration of the Scriptures and in the absolute authority of the Bible in all matters of faith and practice. And we base that on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and on 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Now, I'd like to call your attention to six key words and phrases in that statement. The first four words define what we believe about the Bible. The last two phrases describe how the Bible should function in our individual lives as well as in our churches. The first word is divine. What do we mean when we say that we believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible? The word divine means that we believe that it comes from God. We believe that when the writers of Scripture penned their words, what they wrote ultimately came from God. And so behind the Holy Scripture stands God himself. That's what we believe. The second word is verbal. Verbal has to do with words, words that you speak or words that you write. So verbal inspiration means that inspiration extends all the way down to the very words that the apostles used when they wrote the words of Scripture or that the prophets used when they wrote the books of the Old Testament. Now let me clarify what I mean here. We do not believe that God simply inspired the writers of Scripture so that they felt very close to God and out of that closeness to God they sat down and wrote whatever they wanted to write. Inspiration is not merely in the writers of Scripture, but inspiration extends to the very words they wrote. 
we believe the inspiration of the Bible extends to the very words of the text. Verbal inspiration means word for word inspiration. That's what we believe. The third word is plenary. The word plenary means extending to all the parts. Verbal means word for word. Plenary means to every part. Plenary means that inspiration is not just for the good parts of the word that we like to read and that we love and that we understand. And yeah, that's good. Let's keep those. Inspiration is not just for the parts that we use in our quiet time. Inspiration is not just for the parts that really move us. We're saying that God inspired the whole of Scripture, not just John 3.16, but all the way out to the very ends of the text. God inspired every part of it. And then the word inspiration. Inspiration has to do with God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and regarded and, and uh, recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. Now let me emphasize three things here. Number one, God superintended, but he did not dictate. Number two, he used human authors and their own individual styles. And number three, the product of that was in the original manuscripts without error. Now let's notice the two key phrases in that statement. The two key phrases that describe how the Bible should function in our individual lives as well as in our churches. Because we hold such a high view of the Bible, we believe that it should function with absolute authority in our midst. And by that, we mean that since the Bible is God's word, then it must be our final court of appeals in all of our theological debates. More than that, the Bible stands supreme over the opinions of man. And so when there's a conflict between what our culture says and what the Bible teaches, then we reject our culture in favor of the Bible. And we do that even when obeying the Bible makes us unpopular in our community. So the final phrases tell us that we accept the absolute authority of the Bible in all matters of faith and practice. Now, I believe that this is extremely crucial because it tells us that the Bible reigns supreme over every aspect of our lives together. To speak of the Bible's authority in all matters of faith means that we get our doctrine directly from the Bible. If the Bible says it, we believe it. And our teaching has authority only to the extent that it is truly based on the Bible. To speak of the Bible's authority in all matters of practice, now that covers a wide area. It means that we want the Bible to tell us how we should organize our church. We want the Bible to tell us how we should raise our children. We want the Bible to tell us what our family life should be like. We want the Bible to tell us what our priorities should be. We want the Bible to tell us how we should spend our money. And even more than that, it means that we are obligated to live according to the ethical teachings of the Bible. So when someone joins our church, 
then they are implicitly accepting the sacred obligation not only to believe what the Bible teaches, but also to live according to its high and holy standards. And that's what it means to believe in the divine, verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Now the first part of that statement is important because once you understand the first part of that statement, then and only then does the second part of that statement make any sense which is we also believe in the absolute authority of the Bible in all matters of faith and practice. Because this book that we call the Bible is God-breathed, because it really is from God, because it really is true in all of its parts, we believe that when this book speaks, God speaks. Therefore, what this book says is true, and we must believe it, and we must obey it. And so when the Bible speaks to us, it is absolutely authoritative. And that's really what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice that he brackets that statement, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, two ways. First of all, he says in verse 15 that the Bible reveals to us the way of salvation. And he talks about how Timothy from infancy had known the holy scriptures that were able to make him wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We all know, my friends, that the Bible doesn't save us. The Bible does not save us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. But where do you find that gospel? Where do you find out about Jesus Christ? You find out that those things in the pages of this book that we call the Bible. So the Bible is authoritative in that it leads us to the knowledge of salvation. Then secondly, he says that the Bible is authoritative in that it equips us in every way for everything we need in the Christian life. That's what he's talking about in verse 16. He says the Bible is useful for teaching. We can use this book to teach the truth to a society that doesn't even know what truth is. It's useful for rebuking. We can use this book to stand against the error that, has, that is being so uh, fluent in our society today. It is useful for correction. It even shows us when we've gone the wrong way. It's useful for training or instruction in righteousness. It shows us how we can live lives that are pleasing to God. Why do we need to know those things? Verse 17 tells us so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a military picture. You know, we've all seen those soldiers over in the Persian Gulf in their full battle gear, you know, helmets and masks and all that stuff. That's the picture here. It's a military picture. It's a picture of a believer totally equipped to go into battle. We're in a battle, right? And whatever we need to go into battle, we can find it in the Word of God. It's all there. Now that's a high view of Scripture, I realize. But I'm trying to differentiate between, between what, what we believe versus what some other people believe because nothing is more fundamental and nothing is more foundational than this. We believe the Bible is divinely inspired and verbally true, and its inspiration extends to all of its parts. It is 
the God-breathed message from the Father, and it is, therefore, absolutely authoritative in everything that it says. Every word of it is absolutely true. Therefore, my friends, we need to hold on to this book. Don't be dissuaded from this book. Don't let somebody tell you that there's parts of this book that you don't need to, see, to know or that you don't need anymore. Never be turned away from it. Now with that in mind, let me wrap things up this evening by giving you four implications of this doctrine for the Southern Methodist Church. Number one, we want to follow the Bible just as closely as we can follow it. The Bible is our final authority. Now if the Bible comes from man, then we are entitled to sit in judgment on it. But if the Bible comes from God, then we must bow in submission to it. It is our supreme authority. And just like Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, we say our conscience is bound by the word of God. Here we stand. We can do no other. Number two, we want our teaching and we want our preaching to be Bible-centered to a world that rejects authority, the church must declare the authority of God. We must preach, we must teach, and we must proclaim the word of God without apology because it is the only hope that this dying world has, the truth that is found in this book. Number three, we want to follow the Bible in both the doctrine and the practice of our church and in our individual lives. You see, it's one thing to say you believe the Bible. It's another thing to live that out on a daily basis. But we must allow the Word of God to infiltrate every fiber of our being and mold us into the very image of Christ. As John R.W. Stott said, we must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. And number four, when forced to make a choice between our culture and the Bible, we choose the Bible. We live in days of spiritual anarchy. We must therefore be men and women under authority who do what we are told even when it isn't popular. So if we are despised for telling the truth about homosexuality, then so be it. If we are despised for telling the truth about abortion, then so be it. And if we are despised for telling the truth about gay marriage, then so be it. And if we are thought to be narrow-minded and bigoted, then so be it. Our deepest commitment must be to the Word of God. If we would even hope to make an impact on the godless society in which we live today, it is only going to be as we stand strong on the solid truths of the Judeo-Christian faith. 
It is only going to be as we cling to the only hope that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is only going to be that we earnestly pray for divine intervention and ask God to do that which we ourselves can't do. And it is only going to be by being wholly committed to the authority of God's word. The only way that we can combat the error so prevalent in our day is with the truth of the word of God. That is the foundation of everything else we believe and everything else we do. And if the foundation be strong, then you can build a house that will stand the storms of cultural destruction while other houses are blown away by the howling winds of sin and unbelief. This book, my friends, must become a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. We might be the only ones standing strong on it, but we stand on it. We take it with us, we read it, we pray over it, and then we obey what it says. That's the only way we will ever have an impact on the society in which we live. We're called to be salt and light, but if we lose our saltiness, then we will never be useful to God as a change agent in our society. In fact, we become worthless. And he puts us on a shelf. As Southern Methodists, my friends, we have got to be wholly committed to this book, no matter what. That's where I stand. And that's where I trust you stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. For your holy word is such a treasure, Lord, and we don't even realize it. We stick it on a shelf. We leave it in the car from Sunday to Sunday. And yet there's so many people in the world that don't even have a copy of it that would love to have one. And so many times, Lord, we, we have it, but we don't really understand what it says. And even if we do, we certainly don't practice what it teaches. And yet somehow we hope that in some way we might make some kind of a difference. Oh, Lord, make us people of your book. Help us to know and understand your truth. Help us to use that truth to combat the error that we see in our world today. Help us to use that truth, Lord, to instruct others in the way they should be living. May we never be dissuaded from this book. Use it in our hearts. Use it in our lives. Use it in our families. Use it in our churches, Lord, that we indeed might be used of you as a change agent as we confront the culture of our day. We pray in Jesus' name.
start closing him or something? Or? Let's do the choruses again. Let's do the choruses again. Let's sing our, let's, let's stand together and, and let's sing our, our, our conference uh, courses together again. Okay. Just to remind ourselves. That's right. All right. Thy word have I hid in my heart. We got to get the organ pumped up now at that point. We believe it, so let's sing it out together to his glory. B-I-B-L-E together singing. Cecil gave a report here tonight. The total offering tonight for the uh, retired ministers, widows, and missionaries, $4,592.65. Thank you. And again, if your church came and you did not come prepared to give, you may still do so. Be sure you make it out, however, as you send a check to the Eastern Conference, not to the General Conference, okay? Brother, anything else tonight? God bless you and have a good night's rest. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 8.30 here at the church. God bless you as we leave.